Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to episode number 116 of the Milestone Pursuit podcast. This is, of course, the podcast that brings you a number of things. It brings you workouts, where I record myself doing a session, and you can download it and do it with me, as if I'm there with you. If that's your cup of tea, it is the podcast that brings you conversations with the elites, as part of our scheme to invest in underfunded British elite marathon runners. And it is the podcast that brings you recovery rambles, where I run easy around the beautiful Epping Forest and talk about something that's on my mind. And today, on Friday the 30th of June, it's a beautiful sunny morning, a little bit muggy maybe. That's what we got. We got a bit of a recovery ramble but with a slight twist in that this is the first in a little mini-series around the topic of women in sport. That's what we're going to be rambling about today. I'll talk a little bit more about what that involves later on. But mainly it's looking at the subject of women in sport through the eyes of women in running. But we will also be considering and talking about other sports as well, particularly today. But before I do that, a bit of an update because it's been a bit quiet on the podcast for a little while and in truth it's been a bit of a lull a bit of a, a little bit downtime post the London Marathon which came quickly on the heels of the Valencia Marathon which came quickly on the heels of London in October so giving myself a little bit of a break and doing some other stuff I, uh, mainly in the coaching arena doing kids coaching in football and cricket, East End Lions finished their season well, Loughton Cricket Club season well underway, getting stuck into that and of course with running coaching too, keeping me plenty busy enough but I've chilled out on my own running a little bit but things are starting to come back so that's all good. And because there's been a bit of a lull, I thought it's probably about time we had a little bit of an update on the status of British marathon running. Subject very close to our heart here. And it's been a funny kind of half year really, as we're at the dead halfway point of the year, end of June. Because with the World Championships in August and the qualifying period for that finishing relatively early, and the Paris Olympics still being such a long way away, the first half of the year has been a little bit quiet, particularly on the women's side. But we'll come back to that. Let's start with the men. I suppose the broader context for this, which is interesting, is the Olympic qualifying standard. The window opened at the end of November, closes again at the end of April in 2024, and the men's qualifying time is two hours, 
eight minutes and 10 seconds. And the women's qualifying time is 2.26.50. Now the twist to that is that 50% of the qualifiers will qualify via time and the other 50% will qualify via world ranking. So it's not quite just as simple as trying to run that time. You can also get in another way, but you're still gonna have to run fast. But 208.10 is interesting for loads of reasons, but one particularly, which is it's three seconds slower than Emil Caress ran at the London Marathon. 208.07 for a big breakthrough, not just for himself, but for British Marathon runners full stop. Been speaking for a while now about how the depth in elite marathon running in the UK was really on the charge and how it was likely that that depth would open up a breakthrough as people were competing with one another, pushing each other on, inspiring one another. All of those good things that we know happens when there's lots of people performing at a high level. And then we can look at the depth again even though it's been a relatively quiet first six months of the year there's already eight men who have run a time faster than the tenth fastest time from 2022 suggests further improvements are coming and just to add to that thought of those eight men only two of them appeared in the top 10 from last year so that is a lot of people who are now running around 2.15 or of course quicker so the field is strong it's deep so maybe we'll see even more breakthroughs now on the women's side it has been a particularly quiet six months with the stellar field that was promised for the London Marathon not ending up becoming a reality with injuries to most of the key runners looking to do well from Amish McColgan to Charlotte Jess Piasecki Steph Davis and that left the field wide open for Samantha Harrison to have a brilliant run 2.25.59 inside the Olympic qualifying time but so far this year there's only been another three women who've run faster than the 10th fastest time from last year. And of course the reason I look at the 10th fastest time is because it's an indicator of depth, which I think then leads on to quality. A hypothesis that may or may not have been proven by Emil Crest. And indeed Phil Sessiman running 2.10 and a bit of change at the London Marathon. And of course, Samantha Harrison going under 2.26 so the autumn's going to be interesting I think we're going to see some racing we're going to see people trying to lay down their qualifying marks for the Olympics good opportunities in the autumn especially if you haven't raced in the spring with potentially a backup of doing something in the spring if the autumn doesn't quite come off so I think we'll see some pretty aggressive running which should be interesting and of course we have Natasha Cochran running in the World Championships in Budapest in August, likely to be warm. 
and I do think it will be especially competitive on the women's side. So that segues quite nicely into the main topic of the day. The thing we're here for. Let's talk about women in sport, shall we? And I suppose the first question to ask is, why? Why do I want to talk about women in sport? And I think it's largely a few things, but there's definitely a moment in time thing going on where things are starting to really shift at pace. It really does seem like the momentum is shifting. So I just wanted to explore that. But coincidentally, and this was genuinely a coincidence, I've been planning this for a little while, there's the publication, that's the right word, the release maybe, of the Netflix documentary Game On, based on Sue Anstice's book of the same name, of which some of what we're talking about today is based on. And it's great, I really recommend you watch it, I also recommend you read the book. And there's loads of interesting things that we'll draw upon throughout this conversation, this monologue really, not a conversation is it? And the documentary really shines a light on a few things, one being the female frailty myth that women's bodies are just not equipped to be able to do sport, which gets unpicked a little bit, but also the societal definitions of femininity, what it is to be a woman and how sport has not been considered to be particularly feminine, allied with what is expected of women in sport, i.e. expected to look good, expected to dress in a certain way. And I guess one of the things that is evidence of a, of a shift is Wimbledon's approach to the female dress code, with it just being around the corner starts on Monday, women are being permitted to not have to wear white undergarments, which has been a cause of anxiety for women who may be on their period while they're playing tennis. So there's bigger shifts going on, which we'll explore. But from my side, why I'm doing this, I mean, I think sport's fantastic and I can really see how it's enabled me to experience a really fun life, really. A challenging one, learned loads, enjoyed loads, done stuff. And I can see that now playing out with my boys. I've got two children, as you know, both boys, both into sport. And I find myself thinking and saying that sport is really important for them. It's important for their mental health. It's important for their development, for their social skills, and that's as boys, and I think it's really important for boys. But why wouldn't it be important for the other 50% of the population? Why shouldn't sport, and all the brilliant things that it brings, why shouldn't it be available to everyone? And of course we're not saying it's not available, but it's certainly easier to access for some than it is for others in an intersectional way as well there's not just women and girls your access will vary based on your background your upbringing your race as well as your gender and this really is a systemic issue and 
And one of the things they talk about very early on in Game On is this idea that sport was created for men, by men, and was ever thus. Such the point, such a deep systemic issue, that girls don't even notice. It doesn't even cross their minds. It's accepted. That sport is predominantly for boys and for men. But we are shifting from that status quo and I'm going to unpick that a little bit. And that status quo really is that sport is not equal and that's certainly the case and we'll talk about that a little bit. And that women's sport is not as popular and it's not as popular because it's not as good. So we're going to explore that through the mini-series starting today with my own thoughts, with a bit of data, but we'll explore it later through the mini-series, through the eyes of women in running, but we'll be thinking about sport in general as we do that. And I guess this has become especially interesting to me because of my own upbringing, my own background, my own experience in sport, which apart from running and maybe a little table tennis in my teens, the sport I've played has been male dominated, football and cricket especially. And cricket of course is taking a serious bashing this week with the release or the publication of a report that suggests the system is endemically racist, sexist and elitist. Now I love cricket and cricket and running I think are good bedfellows for the type of people that they, they attract with the one exception that it is a very male sport whereas running is very inclusive. Now I can confirm with cricket that I was privileged enough to have the opportunity to play at school in a state school but I wasn't privileged enough to go to the right school and have all the right equipment and the access to all the best coaches that you need to to make a living out of playing cricket as a sport. I'm not saying I was ever good enough to do that, but it's really clear to me at a young age that there was an elitism that existed. And even now, that is certainly true. At the club I coach, the men's playing membership, I would guess, is something like 80% Asian. The junior membership, probably more like 50%. And again, a little bit of intersectionality here. I would estimate that maybe somewhere around two thirds of all the kids are in public schools. And the club runs four adult men's teams six or seven junior teams and one women's team. I'm going to talk about that again in a little while, but those issues are real. But because of that background that I have in male-dominated sports, and of course as being a man myself, I am certain I carry unconscious bias. I'll almost certainly mishold some beliefs and almost certainly get some things wrong. 
and I'll probably do some mansplaining as we go through this as well. But I'd ask for forgiveness for that because I'm learning. I think we're all learning, particularly the men for whom sport has been a key part of their life throughout. And we'll talk about the importance of men in all of this a little bit later, as indeed does Game On. So in this intro, I'm getting through it now, in this intro, we're going to explore that status quo, that it's not equal, and it's not equal because it's not as popular, and it's not as popular because it's not as good. But I'm going to flip that because I find all that a little bit pejorative. I've just done a flipping motion with my hands as I'm running along. Just did it again. And instead of that, I'm going to talk about three big headings. I'm going to talk about prestige. I'm going to talk about popularity and profile. A nice alliteration. You'll hear about participation and pay and all of that as well. But let's start with prestige. And prestige is really what kind of comes with success. It's what what success involves, what the rewards are in a roundabout way. And of course in sport, in the modern era, we win trophies and we win cups and medals and all of those good things. But prestige is also about pay. So we're going to talk a little bit about that one element of prestige, which is pay. And we're going to start by looking at tennis and athletics. And those are two sports, whenever I think about equality in sport, that I think of as probably being the most equal. And actually, athletics and running rises to the top of the chart. It's a subject we'll get into later in the conversations we have as part of the mini-series. But pay is probably pretty equal. When you look at tennis, each of the four Grand Slams pay, pay the players exactly the same. But overall in tennis, on average, men earn about 34% more than women. And indeed, when you look at Serena Williams, she is the only female athlete to appear in the Forbes list of the 50th highest earning sports people. She's the only woman. And that was in the year in which she retired. So it'll be a different picture this year for sure. So tennis, more equal than others, but still not equal. Football, well in the UK, it's most certainly not equal. I'm not even going to talk about those numbers because the disparity is so huge. But in the US, it's a different story. In the US, the women's soccer team, which have been way more successful than the men's equivalent for quite some time, have been very successful at negotiating equal pay. And Abby Wambach, who was one of the key figures in the conversations that they had to have as a team with the authorities around pay, who's written a really nice book called The Wolfpack, about, which is largely about how women can play a bigger role in sport. And in that, she, she has a nice little line that says, be grateful for what you have and demand what you deserve. With those two things, 
being entirely possible against each other. So being grateful for the opportunity that you do have, be respectful to others, but don't sell yourself short in the process. That's a really positive and powerful message. Moving back to cricket, which we're going to do a few times. The Indian Premier League is the place where cricketers go to earn money, the big money. Still not on a par with Premier League footballers. And the women's IPL is now really starting to gain traction and pay is starting to multiply quite significantly. So Simriti Mandana is the highest earning women's player this year. She picked up around about 400,000 US dollars for a 12 week stint in the IPL. Homegrown talent for the overseas. Nat Siva Brunt, an English cricketer, picked up a similar amount but a little bit less. So that sounds good, sounds like a lot of money to me. But you compare it to the men, the highest earner was Sam Curran, another English cricketer, and he picked up 2.2 million. So earning maybe five to six times more than the women. Still better than football, but not exactly equal. Now, one of the key arguments used by men for a long period of time around pay is that women's sport is not as popular. It doesn't bring in the audiences, those audiences that advertisers and brands and, of course, the clubs themselves want access to. So let's unpick that, shall we? What's happening in audiences? Let's talk about popularity. Well, firstly, we're going to talk about athletics again and in a YouGov study from 2020 we learn that athletics is the sport that has parity in viewing figures between men's events and women's events. Now a large part of that is going to be that men's and women's events are held at the same time in the same meet. But of course that's the power of inclusivity. So not having separation between men's and women's events creates that opportunity. The equality of participation creates the opportunity for equality of, of audience. Rugby is the, is the sport with the biggest disparity between the audience for the men's event and the women's event and football's not far behind. Now moving on to football, it really is shifting at some pace. So 87,000 people went to watch the European Championship final last summer at Wembley when the Lionesses beat Germany. But perhaps more tellingly, the Women's FA Cup final in 2022, which was before the Euros, was watched by 49,000 people at Wembley. This year, it was watched by 77,000. So that's a massive shift. And a brilliant one. But that's in stadium spectatoring. What about those big TV audiences? Well, if you unpick it a little bit, all you see is that for a standard Premier League match, the audience 
for the men's game is probably five times higher than the audience for the women's game. I mean, that's obviously nowhere near the disparity in the pay. And interestingly, on both the men's and the women's games, they are watched by broadly two-thirds men and one-third women. So twice as many men as women watch football, whether it's female football or male football. When it comes to the domestic game, that is. I guess that's just people who enjoy sport, who enjoy football, irrespective of who's playing it. When you look at the Euros and that final that I spoke of before, heralded as one of the great moments in female sport, quite rightly so. 17 million people watched that at its peak. And that audience was split broadly 50-50, male and female. So a much higher female audience than for a normal domestic football match. And now back to cricket. The last week or so since the women's ashes taking place at the same time as the men's ashes. I think for the first time. It's a different format. It's not equal. But we'll park that. The women played a test match last week in Nottingham. And across the four, sorry, five days of the, of the match, 23,000 people attended. which broke the UK record for a test match involving women of 15,000, which was set in 1957. So that is a quite telling and dramatic shift. And then moving on to tennis, you look at the, the finals of the the Grand Slams, the men's matches typically get slightly more audience than the women's matches, with the exception of the US Open, which gets a lot more women. Sorry, which gets a lot more audience to the women's match than the men's. And I think that probably tells us something about tennis as a sport in the US, and perhaps sport in general in the US. So I think we can conclude a little bit from that, that in stadium, real life spectatoring, there's quite a dramatic shift happening and it's a positive story. But of course one other argument around TV audiences is that it can't be as popular if there's not as much of it available and intuitively I think it's fair to believe that the amount of women's sport on TV now has grown and when you look at the stats it sort of backs that up so in 2022 the average person watched eight and a half hours of women's sport on TV across the year compared to three and a half hours in 2021 so doubled still small numbers but doubled 38 million people watched domestic women's sport in 2022 compared to 32 million people in 2021. That's a bit more dramatic. And we're now at a point where 13% of all the hours of sport broadcast on TV in the UK is women's sport. Sounds like a small number, but the previous year it was significantly under 10%. So it is moving forward. And again, moving back to cricket, 
It was interesting last week to watch the reaction of the media to Tammy Beaumont, who played a brilliant innings of over 200 for England in the Test match against Australia, the first time an English female cricketer has scored over 200 in an innings. And the back pages the next day reflected that. But it's not just hours covered or the pages printed that I think is important in the way that women's sport is represented or that women are represented in sport even. It's the role of women on screen as pundits, as commentators, as presenters. And I think there's obviously been a surge in the number of women that are taking on those roles in men's and women's sport. And I think, I think that must have been really tough. I think they must have, and still do, come into that with imposter syndrome. Who are they as women to talk about men's sport in comparison to the men who've played sport and no sport? I'm not saying any of that's real. I'm saying that's, you would imagine that people might think that they would be an imposter in that scenario. But of course they would also be vulnerable to the internet in a way that men are not, largely because my guess, who knows, but it's a reasonably educated guess that the majority of online trolls on a male. So they got it tough, I think. But I also think, as we'll see throughout this series, the resilience that is built is one of the reasons why women can add so much to sport, certainly in relation to the opportunity that they have at the moment. Now within popularity, let's also talk about participation. And here's a fact, men do more sport than women. Six million men do two and a half hours of sport a week, four million women do. And that's the same story at different levels across any age group. Men do more sport than women. And of course one of the things that is well popularised, it's included in the Game On documentary, is the dropout rate from girls from the end of primary school and through puberty onwards. And it's to such an extent that by the time people are 18, three in 10 women are playing sport and six in 10 men are. And there's loads of themes that we will unpick a little bit of, but it's also in the documentary. Substantiate why that is the case from body image through to discouragement from parents, friends and family or even in society and it's expectations of what femininity is which can be hard for girls as they go from being a girl to a woman. And here I'm really drawn to a real life example again from my from the, from the cricket club I coach at and it's a story of a, an English girl with Pakistani parents who was good at cricket, had qualified as a coach, but was discouraged from participating by her mother because it wasn't a thing that girls do. 
sport is for boys. And this leads me to an interesting area of, of what can be done about participation. And the government reckon that 75% of all the teachers in the UK are women. There's lots of good role models for girls in the teaching community. There's 85% in primary schools, which does mean there's more men teaching in the secondary school environment as women are going through those changes. But even more important and significant than that is that 60% of all PE teachers are male. So when you compare that to the 75% of all teachers being female, that's dramatic. So what does that tell young girls and boys? It tells them that sport is for boys, of course. So there are less female role models. And the same is true in coaching. And here I'm drawn to Lauren Fleshman's book, Good for a Girl, which is a great read. And in that, she talks about the fact in the NCAA, the US collegiate sports system, 42% of the coaches of women's teams are women, which by definition means that 58% of the coaches are men. Yet, when you look at men's teams, only 3% of the coaches are women. So men get to coach women, but women don't get to coach men. And all of this, all of that together, shines a light on a really big systemic issue where women just don't see enough of women in sport. And therefore, the myth that it is not for them and it is for men and for boys is perpetuated. So aside from that, what can we conclude around the status quo that I spoke about at the beginning. Well, it's probably too early through this process for really firm conclusions, but I think we know the direction of travel. But it's not equal. It's definitely not equal. It's improving, but there's still a lot of work to do to provide a quality of access to sport for men and for women, for boys and for girls. But what about the popularity argument? Well, again, it's improving, but it can't possibly be as popular because it just doesn't get the same level of exposure. But as Game On concludes itself, or sets out early on itself, in fact, it's been held back for so long, it's hard now for it to catch up. But what we can see is that where exposure is equal in athletics, popularity is equal to, and participation is also equal. And the argument that it's not as popular because it's not as good, well I think a better way of looking at it is it's not the same, and it's not the same in a good way. One of the reasons suggested that women's football is so popular, and increasingly popular, is because it's a better version of the game. It doesn't have all of the aggression and some of the 
frankly toxic male behaviour that you see at football by players, coaching staff and spectators. And if you define not as good as being not as fast, not as strong, not as powerful, then you're probably right. But there's so much more to sport than that. And if you find other ways and avoid direct comparisons, then I think, as Game On eloquently argues, there's an opportunity for women's sport to actually start sport afresh and rid sport of some of those toxic behaviours that we see and make sport even better than it is already. And perhaps this is the reason why this is so interesting right now is because we are seeing a shift. And while it's definitely not equal, there is momentum. And anyone who watches sport will know that momentum in a sport is absolutely critical. So perhaps it also applies to sport at a macro level. And I think if we are to take advantage of this momentum, then there's a need for male allies, PE teachers, club mates, partners, TV pundits, the sports people themselves. They have a role to celebrate women's sport and enjoy it just as much as they do men's sport. And actually there's one group here in particular which Game On talks about, which is dads of daughters, who for the first time in their life come to see for real for themselves what lack of equality there is and can of course become part of the solution themselves. There's also a significant role for female role models, which we spoke about earlier. More female coaches, PE teachers, pundits and commentators making women visible in sport beyond the screen or beyond the sport itself would appear to be critical in seizing this moment and this opportunity. And this opportunity I think is so big to really change how sport is. I think in years to come we'll look back and go how we ever coped without having women's sport as high profile and as celebrated and as treated equally. So the momentum is there and we'll leave it there for today because we're going to explore this a little further in some conversations with some female athletes and looking at their experiences as juniors, as seniors, as amateurs and professionals which will hopefully be interesting towards this overall story. But for now, thank you for listening. Thank you for putting up with my ramblings. Thank you for forgiving my incoherences, my misled beliefs, any mansplaining and all my biases. And I'll be back again soon with the rest of this mini-series. But in the meantime, please take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 